Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We ended a few weeks ago having done our study in the summer, through the summer, and in well into the fall through the letter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but it seems that we are not quite done yet with this marvelous letter to the Ephesians. We're going to begin a, a new series this morning, a brief series, uh, with my schedule being erratic in October, and then as we look towards uh, the holidays and the end of the year, I was reluctant to start a longer series on a book of the Bible, only to have it frequently interrupted. So I thought we would do something of a mini-series for a few weeks in this last quarter of the year, and it's one in which each sermon, each installment, can stand somewhat uh, isolated, and they can still be a great blessing and benefit to us. The title for the series is called The Golden Chain. Uh, that title is not original to me, not by any stretch. It actually comes from a book published in 1591 by one of the great figures of English Puritanism, William Perkins, sometimes called the father of the Puritans. Uh, the full title, for those of you who might be interested, was called The Golden Chain or The Description of Theology Containing the Order of the Causes of Salvation and Damnation. Uh, actually, it goes on longer than that, but I abbreviated it for you. Aren't you glad we don't live in the days of those long subtitles any longer? Uh, actually, I'm something of a dork. I like those longer subtitles, but maybe, maybe most of you don't. So we'll just call it the golden chain for, uh, for short, for simplicity. But that language of the golden chain is in reference to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. You remember those two glorious verses? For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, in describing our salvation, Paul outlines various aspects, in in as far as we experience it, at least, the various phases or dimensions of our salvation. Each link in the chain, if you like, each link in the chain inevitably leads to the next. So sure and so certain So undeniable is the salvation that God works in his people. And so the golden chain of salvation, as it has come to be known, is a beautiful way, a lovely way to illustrate our experience of what God, who who stands outside of space and time itself, that which God has been working out from eternity past all the way into the present and into eternity future, the golden chain has become a wonderful way to describe our experience of it. It's a way for us to think about the sequence of God's purposes and actions and works in calling a people to himself and bringing them to new life and eventually all the way to heavenly glory. Another way of outlining this experience of the salvation that God works, as scripture has revealed it to us, is what's called the order of salvation, or in Latin it's sometimes called the ordo salutis. I'll explain more on that in just a minute. But undergirding and surrounding and overarching the whole of salvation, every stage of salvation is union with the Lord Jesus Christ. No part of our salvation, no facet, no dimension is experienced apart from the believer's union with Christ Jesus. And our passage this morning focuses in on that aspect. More on that in a moment. But first, let's read from God's word in Ephesians chapter 1, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing. So Ephesians chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 3, all the way down to verse 14. This is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Thus far, God's holy word. Would you pray with me, friends? Lord God, grant us, we pray the ministry of your Holy Spirit to our minds and hearts so that we may understand what we read and that you would use your word in our hearts to strengthen us as we continue in the good fight of faith. Give us illumination and give us a love for and an attention to your word this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, way back when, when William Perkins was writing his book, when he wrote his book, The Golden Chain, which developed out of a sermon series he preached, It was his attempt to try and diagram for his readers the order and the progress of the saving operations of our triune God, from election and eternity, eternity past all the way to eternity in glory in heaven to come and in the new heavens and new earth to come. And one of his goals was to challenge the unconverted and the unconcerned regarding their danger, their serious spiritual peril apart from Christ. But his other objective, actually his main objective in doing this work, was to bring assurance and comfort to believers as they work through the stages of God's dealing with their own souls. As they studied and thought and meditated through these things, Perkins believed it would bring them greater holiness, greater faithfulness, and ultimately it would bring them to a point of greater worship and adoration. Now, I don't think that I'm overstating the case nor do I think that I'm being overly critical when I say that thinking with biblical and theological clarity is at an absolute premium in the church today, at least thinking about the North American church broadly speaking. In other words, thinking clearly about God's saving plan unto his people is increasingly rare. And the concerns raised by Pastor William Perkins in the 1600s are much the same today. For those who profess to be Christians... If we don't understand the teaching of Scripture clearly when it comes to our salvation, on the one hand, there will be many who live in unregenerate presumption, presuming upon God's grace, arrogantly assuming that all is well with them when in reality their soul has not dealt with the holy God. They don't understand what the Scripture 
teaches on this issue, how God saves sinners. And so, in many cases, folks have presumed themselves to be saved, maybe based on some decision they made at one time or another, some card they filled out, or some emotional swelling they felt at one remarkable point in their life. They, they look back to that experience, but meanwhile their lives actually show none of the marks uh, or fruits of a true and living union with the Lord Jesus, none of the fruits or marks of a true believer. So that's one problem on the, on the one hand. But on the other hand, there are just as many who are in fact truly converted, who truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but who understand only some portion of this beautiful golden chain of salvation. And thus there are many who have genuine, and sometimes I dare say crippling, crippling doubt as to the legitimacy of their salvation. They lack the assurance or the confidence that is actually their birthright as one of God's children. And in both cases, both the unregenerate presumptive one, as well as the one with crippling self-doubt, in both cases, as one commentator pointed out, in both cases, true worship is destroyed. The presumptuous false professor thinks himself to be secure, but he's actually indifferent to God and to his glory, and he sees the Lord Jesus only as a means to an end, and he never gives the Lord Jesus the honor that is due his name. And meanwhile, the fearful, doubting believer finds it hard to rejoice in God's grace because he or she can only see his weakness and sin, his own weakness and sin. And so he or she will render to God his worship because they know it's right. They know it's right to do so, and they are compelled by a sense of duty, but actually they are robbed of the delight in Christ that is theirs to enjoy. They're robbed of the great privilege to savor and rejoice in him. So to some extent, and we're dealing in generalizations here, I understand that, but generally speaking, it has been said by many wise men, many wise women down through the ages that part of the goal, part of the goal in Christian preaching and teaching is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. To comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable or the presumptuous. That was the goal of Pastor William Perkins in his day in in writing his book. It was a goal, at least. It was a goal, I would argue, of much of our Lord Jesus' preaching in his day. And it is a goal among many, not the only, but a goal of preaching Scripture in our day is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And so before we look at the passage more in depth, I want to explain a little bit about the logic of our outline. This golden chain of salvation, as we call it, has roughly 11 parts. So 11 different sermons in this series, one for each of the 11 different aspects of our salvation that Scripture discloses to us. Uh, There in the back of the room on a couple of the chairs in the back, I've included a chart for your reference. There's copies of it. Feel free to grab one over on your way out. It's it's not a perfect chart. Uh, I would have tweaked it a few things here or there if I could have, but given my absolute complete lack of any visual art skills, that was one of the better ones that I could come up with uh, that was easily available to follow along. Uh, William Perkins and John Owen have these very exhaustive and intricate charts that they've come up with, and you can look it up on your own if you want to check it out. Uh, Let it never be said, by the way, that our dispensationalist friends are the only ones who have inscrutably complex visual charts that they can come up with. the Reformed have plenty of their own inscrutable and complex, bizarre-looking visual charts as well, and, and John Owen and William Perkins have theirs. So I didn't print those out for you, lest you, you, you go home uh, frustrated with your inability to make any sense of it. But there's that simple one in the back of the room, and it shows you how each facet, each link in the chain, builds upon the previous, and how each one inexorably leads to the other. 
And we're following the classical Reformed understanding here. The, the classic outline, largely, we're benefiting from the work of Professor John Murray. John Murray has this wonderful little book. Many of you have probably read it. It's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And in that little book, chapter by chapter, he explores the different links in the chain, the glorious aspects of our salvation. And Murray helps us to see the beautiful picture that Scripture paints for us. You know, typically, when we say the word salvation, casually speaking, when we're just having informal conversation, typically, when we say salvation, we, we usually mean justified. Right? I was once at enmity with God, and now I am standing before him righteous because I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb, and I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith. I once had a, a negative standing before God. I was unrighteous. I was sinful. I was hellbound, And now I have a right standing before God. I'm justified. This is salvation, and I cannot lose it. But strictly speaking, what I just described is properly called justification. And there is more to the believer's salvation than merely justification, as wondrous as it is. We don't mean to, to undermine that or, or, or poo-poo that in any way. No. But salvation is more properly understood as an umbrella category under which belong all kinds of aspects of God's salvation, God's saving dealings with you, believer. Did you know that your salvation actually involves your calling and your election and your adoption and your perseverance and your growth and holiness and your sure transport to glory and your blessed perfection as well as being justified? So it really is proper to say, I was saved, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And Professor John Murray helps us understand that union with Christ is the great comprehensive term in Scripture that encompasses every single one of those components and every aspect of the entire order of salvation. Now, John Murray, for those of you book nerds like me who know the book, he deals with the topic at the very end of the book. That's where he deals with union with Christ. But he does so for this very same reason that we're dealing with it at the front end of our series, at the beginning. Because we need to remember that everything else that we say about election and calling and conversion, justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification, all of that is really another way to talk about the different facets of the same diamond. And that diamond, that gemstone, is union with Christ, union with Jesus Christ, union with Christ is the context and the, the environment. It is the, it is the foundation and the basis of every spiritual blessing that the believer enjoys. Murray puts it like this. Nothing is more central. Nothing is more basic than union and communion with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Going back even further, John Calvin said, We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, as long as we are not united to Christ, we are separated from him. All that Christ has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us so long as we are not in union by faith with him. Close quote. In other words, all the blessings, all the benefits of redemption that you enjoy, believer in Jesus, can be summed up and articulated through this single phrase, the believer is united to Christ. This, by the way, is where we have a key difference with some of our Lutheran friends. If you ask your Lutheran friends, what is the heart of theology? What is the heart of Christian theology? What is at the rock center of it? They would probably say to you, at least classically, the doctrine of justification. That's what's at the heart of Christian theology. 
Whereas the more classical, historical, reformed understanding would say, well, we would say the heart of theology, the heart of Christian doctrine is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And really what stands at the heart of that center point is union with Christ. uh, Justification is immensely important. Justification is a glorious doctrine. But it is one of many blessings and benefits that the believer enjoys on account of his union or her union with Jesus Christ. Now, there are all kinds of places in Scripture where we could turn to study this doctrine. And it's one of those things where once you become aware of it, you start noticing it everywhere you turn in Scripture. I remember years ago when I was in college, I worked at a Christian summer camp for one of my uh, in-between school year jobs. And I was working at a Christian summer camp, and there was a nature expert named Drew who worked on staff. And he would sometimes lead us through these hikes, through the many, many acres of forest surrounding the camp. And I'm not really a plant guy. I don't know much about flora and fauna, quite frankly. And as he would walk us through these nature hikes, and he would start pointing out different rare or at least notable species of plant life on the forest property, on the camp property. And I looked around. I looked around the woods, and as I'm looking around, I see trees, lots and lots of trees. I don't know what kind of trees. They're just trees. They're green. They have lots of leaves. They're beautiful-looking trees. And maybe I could tell the difference between an oak and a birch and a maple and so forth if I'd really been paying attention. But Drew, on these hikes, would start to point out that there were tons of Japanese maples planted all over the camp property, and he showed us some examples and how distinct these Japanese maples were from your typical American red maple. Well, after that, as we walked around the woods, I could not help but notice these Japanese red maples. They were everywhere, all over the camp, all 400 acres of property. They were springing up all over the place. Something like that we see in Scripture with the doctrine of union with Christ. It's everywhere. John 15, where Jesus teaches that he is the vine and we are the branches and we are to abide in him. That's union with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, He is the head of the body, and we are the members, and we are united together in Him. That's union with Christ. Or later on in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses the analogy of marriage as a picture of the union between Christ, the bridegroom, and His church, the bride. Romans chapter 6, baptism is the sign and seal of our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. And on and on it goes, countless other places. But perhaps the most comprehensive treatment of this doctrine is here in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Look with me again at the passage. I tried to emphasize it when I was reading it, but you see it all over the place. Verse 3, he blessed us in Christ. He chose us in him, verse 4. Verse 5, adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him, when you heard and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Union with Christ, all over this glorious passage. Now, brothers and sisters, we had to do a good bit of introduction just there, a little longer than I would typically, typically go, but I had to do that in order to set the tone for the rest of this series. And so with the few minutes that we have remaining this morning, I want us to notice three brief things from this text, three brief things about the glorious, beautiful, and majestic doctrine that is for our good and for God's glory and for the believer's comfort as we study union with Christ. Three things, the majesty of this union, the agency of this union, and then thirdly, the purpose of this union, the majesty, the agency, and the purpose of this union. Look with me in verse 3 as it begins with that, that note of adoration. 
the majesty of this union. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as my West Virginia Pentecostal grandmother would say, praise be, glory be. And that is a drumbeat that the Apostle Paul hammers over and over and over again all the way through this opening section. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Election, there in verse 6, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. Our experience of salvation, down in verse 12, it is with the intention that those who hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Trophies, if you will, trophies in the treasure chest of Almighty God, that we, the objects of his mercy, that we might be the cause or the occasion, the the impetus for praise to be rendered unto God for his glory. Behold what merciful, what a merciful and gracious God this is. Look with what affection and grace he deals with such vile sinners. If I could reverently paraphrase this opening section of Ephesians 1, that's how I might put it. Or down at verse 14, God gives us his Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. So you see, friends, the fundamental goal of Paul, as he's, as he's writing this out, but also the fundamental goal of God himself, is that he does this. He does this great work of salvation with a view toward the praise and the adoration of his name. The praise and the adoration of his person, of his glory. And so as we take in, again, even as we did a few months ago, the thrust of Ephesians 1 in the opening section here, our response should be like that of the Apostle Paul's. Quite frankly, we should burst into doxology. Isn't that something that we're so guilty of, at least in the Reformed camp? Maybe you're not, but I sure am. We love our theology. We love our doctrine, and rightly so, because God has given it to us for our edification, for our growth, for our protection, for the good of our souls into everlasting eternity. Doctrine is a good thing. We should never disparage doctrine. But so often, what do we do with the doctrine? We read it, we study it, we give the hmm of meditation and consideration, and we close the book, and we tuck it back on the shelf, and there it collects dust for weeks upon weeks and eons upon eons. I know many things so that I can sneak up upon my poor Arminian Baptist friend and trounce him with a doctrine of predestination when he least suspects it when I bump into him at Starbucks. That's not what doctrine is for. Doctrine is not for our academic eggheads to merely one-up one another with a theological hot take. It's not merely for us to feel self-assured that we know more doctrine and more theology than our Pentecostal neighbors down the street. No, we do want to know doctrine. We do want to strengthen and shore up our understanding Doctrine is for life, absolutely, amen. But is it merely so we can feel better about how much we know up against our less reformed neighbor down the street? No, my friends. Doctrine, as the royal emissary of of King Jesus, the Apostle Paul reminds us here, doctrine is for doxology. Doctrine is for doxology. And if that doctrine merely sits collecting dust upon your shelf and does not transform and work its way down into your heart and work into a wellspring overflowing with praise from your lips as you render glory and joy to your God, then you're not using the doctrine for its right and fullest end. Doctrine is for joy. Doctrine is for praise. Doctrine is for glory. Ephesians 1 is for doctrine. It's for comfort. It's for sharpening and informing. It's for humbling. 
but undergirding and surrounding all those purposes, the doctrine of Ephesians 1 is for praise, driving us, all of us, ultimately, to make the great bent of our lives, the great posture of our souls, the great agenda of our lifestyles, to be to the praise of the glory of God's grace. So that's the first thing for us to see here, the majesty, the majesty of this doctrine. But secondly, notice with me the agency, the agency of this union. Who is responsible for this great salvation that the Apostle Paul is so excited about? Who brought this about? Ah, it is the whole of the ever-blessed Trinity, in tandem, working together for our redemption, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He chose us, verse 4, he predestined us according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, verses 5 and 6. God the Father, Paul says, is the one who purposes and elects and chooses to save certain. Yea, many, multitudes without number, Scripture tells us, out of the mass and mess of all of us sinful wretches. The Father chooses. The Father sets his saving love and his grace upon us wretched sinners. And yet, the right, the right to the inheritance of an adopted child of God, which the Father ordained, that right is purchased for us, if you like, only by the Son. Verse 7, in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You see, it was only with the coming of Christ that that which is God's plan for the fullness of time, ordained in eternity past, as if our minds can, can wrap our, as if our minds can wrap themselves around such a notion, ordained in eternity past, and only with the coming of Christ as he bursts into eternity present, Paul says, was it finally put into effect? And then finally, though the Father has ordained our redemption and the Son has achieved our redemption, how is it that we come to enjoy or experience the reality of our redemption? Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, the Spirit's work in us applies Christ's work to us. The Spirit's work in us applies Christ's work to us. The work of Christ, which was done in obedience to the Father's plan for us. Father, Son, Spirit, for us, in us, to us. As you ponder that reality, as you, as you drink it in, as you think of the operations of the Holy Trinity at work to accomplish the salvation of God's people, is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul bursts into doxology in this passage? God in three persons, as we sang earlier this morning, blessed Trinity, The thrice holy God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all at work to bring about this great salvation in the lives of God's children. To to, to draw God's people so that they might know something, just something, of that blessed life and fellowship of the love of God. That, That blessed fellowship, that blessed communion that exists amongst the fellowship of the three persons of the Trinity that God's people might know something, just a hint of that fellowship and blessedness as we are drawn into communion with them, Father, Son, and Spirit. But how is it? How is it that we come to enjoy God's glory? How is it that we come to commune with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? If I could put it a little woodenly, how do you you get? How do you get to participate in that extraordinary reality? Well, that brings us to our third and final point this morning, the purpose of this union. 
the majesty of this union, and first and now the purpose of this union. The majesty of this union, the agency of this union, and now the purpose of this union. Verse 3 again. Listen again to the apostle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, where? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I really liked how one commentator pointed out. That's Paul's thesis statement for this section. And everything else that flows out of that statement. Everything else here in this section of Ephesians 1, everything else that follows is an exposition of that statement. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Paul, as he goes on, is just giving an expounding and an exposition of this glorious truth. He blessed us in Christ even as he chose us, verse 4, in him before the foundation of the world, in order that we should be holy and blameless before him. We were predestined to adoption as sons, verse 5, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, even Jesus Christ. I really like how uh, the New American Standard Bible puts it. That's one of my favorite translations. Maybe you're using uh, that version this morning. But I like how it puts it. We were predestined for adoption as sons according to the kind intention of his will. Or even more literally, the good pleasure of his will. In him, Paul goes on to say, we have redemption through his blood. And then he talks about the coming of Christ and the work of Christ as the the outworking of a a purpose in, in time. The, the, the mystery of God's plan now beginning to take place in history from eternity past in the, in the recesses of the mysterious will, the inscrutable will of God Almighty. It's something which he set forth in Christ, a, a plan for the fullness of the times to unite ultimately all things in Christ. Now, how do we get our minds around that? We're going to talk about that later on in this series. We're going to talk about that later on to, to explore that notion more fully than we have time for today. But for now, do you see then the purpose the purpose of God in eternity and in election, in choosing, in, in setting his love upon his people. It is all designed in eternity in Christ to save sinners into union with his Son. It is in Christ that this plan takes place. And it is accomplished by Christ at Calvary in space-time history. In eternity past, God plans it. In eternity present, he brings it to bear as it bursts into space-time history, and it will one day result in eternity future in the glorious renovation of all things. Past, present, and future are all summed up and all comprehended in Christ. And Paul says also, even in our own experience, even in our mere, limited, mortal perception of this cosmic orchestration that God is up to, Even if we can't get our heads outside of planet Earth and see things from a cosmic, eternal perspective, we can't. But even in our limited mortal perspective, we perceive it because of Christ. You see how indispensable Christ is all over here. In him, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. We were the first to hope in Christ, to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth and believed the gospel of salvation... You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. In other words, God purposes his design. He accomplishes his design. He applies his design. He fulfills his design. And he does it all in union with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It all comes to us in him. 
How central, how gloriously indispensable is our salvation in Christ. Even our, even our being sealed with the Holy Spirit of Christ is done with a view to our enjoyment of a heavenly possession when God will unite all things together in him. You see that in verses 10 and verse 14. The believer in Christ is sealed with the Spirit of Christ so that the believer might be more suited to better delight in Christ when God subsumes all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. I love how one commentator put it. He said, There is no phase of the redemptive purpose of the living God, nor is there any aspect of its execution in eternity or history or in our experience that is outside of union with Christ. There is no truth more glorious more breathtaking in its sweep and in its scale than the doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ, close quote, union with Christ, my friends, is at the heart of the gospel. It is the good news. Remember, what do you get in the gospel? Not just pardon, not just forgiveness, as sweet and as splendid as it is. No, in the gospel, you get Christ and all his benefits. In Christ you gain God himself that you might dwell with him forever and he abide with you in a never-ceasing fellowship of you delighting in your God and Savior and he delighting in you, his ransomed and redeemed child. And so, friends, as we begin to work through each phase of the order of salvation, as we go through link by link by link through this golden chain over the next several weeks together, let's be sure to remember that each blessing, each benefit, each aspect is but a component of the whole. We are looking week by week at each splendid facet, a a different angle, a different perspective, but all of the same glorious diamond. As we consider the Ordo Salutis, we're really doing nothing more than exploring the unfathomable blessing of our connection to Jesus, by which God has bound himself to us and by which we are forever wedded to him. What a stunning, what a breathtaking thing this is. Union with Christ. That God would take wretched sinners like me and like you. And that he would bind himself to us by the gospel forever. Oh, who like me his praise should sing. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like we his praise should sing. How can it do anything else than make us burst into doxology? Truly, may the Lord bless to us the ministry of his word today. Would you pray with me, friends? Our Father, we confess that it's as if we're standing at the edge of a great chasm, as as if we're standing over a theological grand canyon. We are peering over the edge, and we can see the depths, but we are unable to see the bottom as we think about union with Christ. We have barely scratched the surface of this magnificent truth, but we pray that you would whet our appetites to dive in and to continue to seek to explore those unfathomable depths, so that like the apostle and the saints of old, we too would be caught up in wonder, love, and praise to the Savior. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.